From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Hillary's book about what happened in the 2016 election. The book is called What Happened. Sarah Leonard has our report. Also, the Vietnam War, or at least the Ken Burns PBS explanation of the war. It's on TV this week. Todd Gitlin will comment. But first, big news in the Russiagate scandal, the first indictments. Robert Mueller, the special counsel, has told Trump's campaign manager, Paul Manafort, that he's about to be indicted, according to the New York Times. And not only that, Manafort has been the subject of a court-ordered wiretap for more than a year, according to CNN. For this blockbuster story, we turn to Bob Dreyfus. He covers the Russia investigations for the nation. He also writes for Rolling Stone and other publications. Bob, welcome back. Thanks very much. I'm glad to be here. So let's start about this indictment news. What do we know about the indictment? Well, there's no indictment yet. Um, The special counsel, Robert Mueller, uh, is apparently thinking it over, but he has, uh, according to the New York Times, told Paul Manafort that he is likely to be indicted. Manafort was Donald Trump's campaign manager last summer for... Uh, a number of months from the spring until August, when he was replaced by Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway. During that time, uh, it appears during part of that time at least, he was subject to a federal investigation, a court-ordered wiretap. The thing about Manafort is he's kind of the weak link in the whole Trump operation. You may recall that in July, his home in Alexandria, Virginia, was raided. The feds broke into his house. They actually used a no-knock warrant and broke into his house and seized a bunch of evidence. They've subpoenaed testimony from a number of his aides and advisors and one of his lawyers. And, And in the process of this, according to the Times, they told him that he himself, Manafort, is likely to be indicted. So now we have the first sign from the Mueller investigation that he's planning to bring criminal charges. And what do we think these criminal charges might be? I mean, collusion with the Russians is what we're interested in here, but uh, that may not be the number one uh, item in the indictment. Well, of course, we don't know. I don't know to what extent even collusion, depending on what happened, would be a crime. It right. might be something bad, but right. it may or may not be a crime. We don't know. True. So Paul Manafort has been working for 10 or 12 years with Russian oligarchs, Ukrainian oligarchs, and a lot of other people, billionaires in real estate deals. That goes back to at least 2004. And we don't know whether uh, Manafort has fallen under the, the spyglass of the U.S. intelligence community during that time which may have been looking at his foreign partners for other reasons, intelligence-related reasons. What we do know is that in 2014, Manafort was made subject to a intelligence uh, court-ordered wiretap. They began investigating him, but that means also listening to his communications, his phone conversations, and so forth. That started in 2014. According to CNN, it, it ended sometime last year. 
And then it was restarted. And when you ask, what are they going to indict him for? Part of the reason it was restarted was because the intelligence community apparently picked up on conversations between Manafort and the Russians about the election campaign and in which he may have encouraged, again, according to CNN, in which Manafort may have encouraged the Russians to get involved in supporting Donald Trump. So if that's true, then they have evidence that Manafort himself was the campaign manager, was directly involved in this Russiagate question. The really interesting thing is this wiretap that was resumed last year continued into this year, which means that they could have been listening in to Manafort's conversations even with the president of the United States, because apparently Manafort and Trump did talk after Trump was inaugurated. That would not be, by the way, a violation of any rules, because if they're listening to person X and person Y is picked up on that conversation, then person Y is a fit subject for for the investigation, even if he's president of the United States. Uh, CNN points out, by the way, we don't know if Trump was was listened to in, in these conversations, but it raises a whole host of really amazing questions about whether they can nail Manafort on uh, his cooperation with the Russians and or whether they're using his financial and real estate deals to try to face him with a prison sentence and then get him to flip to cooperate with Mueller and tell them everything he knows. So the wiretap was approved by a foreign intelligence court. There's also the search warrant. You said it was a no-knock warrant. I uh, th- I don't think we've had this news before. What's the significance of a no-knock warrant? Well, a, a search warrant means that the local police, or in this case the feds, can knock on your door and say, we have a warrant to search the premises, and you've got to let them in. But in this case, the judge approved a no-knock warrant, which means that apparently they picked the lock on Manafort's house, and the first knock he actually heard, according to the Times, was when they knocked on the door of his bedroom, saying, hello, uh, we're here. This was a pre-dawn raid, so presumably he was he was sleeping. Uh, the reason they would do such a thing is because they must have thought that if they had knocked on his door and he saw who was knocking, that he might destroy evidence. That's the only reason why they would have a no-knock warrant is because they felt like uh, Mr. Manafort would, I don't know, destroy something, flush something down the toilet, eat it, whatever he could do. Um, so they came in without announcing themselves. So we don't uh, this think this is really playing hardball. This is tough stuff. So we don't think this was drugs. What? 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 Do we know anything about what they were looking for and what they seized? Well, no, we don't. But we know that when they did the raid, they took uh, boxes and and piles of documents. They took electronic devices and and electronic records, no doubt. Either I, I know they copied the files on his computer. They may have taken the computer itself. I mean, they they did a, 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 a you know real sweeping raid when they went into his home. And so, if there was anything, either in his home or by the way in a storage facility that he was also using, which they also got a search warrant to uh, break into, 
then you know they've they've been working pretty hard on, on uh, getting the goods on on Manafort. And meanwhile, some Republicans in Congress have been trying to to sabotage the investigations underway there. For a long time, there's been an argument that what Congress ought to investigate about the 20, 2016 election is not Russian interference and Trump campaign collusion, but rather what critics call the interference of American intelligence agencies in the 2016 election, uh, the role of the CIA and the FBI in leaking material critical of Trump, which they say was part of an intelligence community effort to prevent Trump from becoming president. There's been some news on this front now from the chair of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, Devin Nunes of California, what what is this story about? The thing is that Devin Nunes, who kind of embarrassed himself earlier this year when he overtly cooperated with the White House in, in trying to throw up roadblocks on the investigation, he was forced to recuse himself to say, I'm not going to be in charge of this investigation anymore because of his kind of clownish actions. He hasn't gone away, however, even though he's supposedly not leading the investigation anymore. So he has done some uh, untoward things, shall we say, uh, including recently issuing a, a subpoena to the Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, uh, and to Mr. Gray, the head of the FBI, asking them to turn over everything and anything they know about the Steele dossier, the famous Trump dossier that was uh, leaked last year to BuzzFeed, which presented a, a five-year pattern of Russian cooperation with Trump in, in, in business and political terms and some salacious details that they felt could be used to blackmail uh, Trump. So, so Nunes is... is accusing the FBI and the Justice Department of somehow being in league with this Steele dossier and no doubt pressing them to explain what they know about it, uh, Did you know, what about leaks, what about uh, unmasking of, of uh, U.S. officials who may have been caught up. I mean, so he's, he's doing everything and anything he can to try to divert and throw off this investigation. And he's been called on it by a number of members of the committee as well. So all this is on the House side, the House Intel Committee. There is another parallel investigation separate being conducted in the Senate by the Senate Intelligence Committee. Are they also being pushed by Republican members towards this, uh, what they call, Intelgate as an alternative to Russiagate? Well, I think the the Senate Intelligence Committee is much more bipartisan and much more judicious than the House, who has a number of, which has a number of bomb throwers on the committee. The the Senate committee is much more serious. The two leaders, the Democrat and the Republican, uh, Richard Burr from North Carolina and Mark Warner, the Democrat from Virginia, who's the vice chair, um, they've been cooperating pretty well, according to sources I've talked to on Capitol Hill. I think the Republicans are well, maybe dragging their feet a little bit, um, but they're not throwing up 
roadblocks. They're, they're serious about it. They seem convinced that there's possibly some fire where there's some this smoke that's, that's evident. And one of the members of the committee, Mr. Swalwell from California, uh, told me that he, you know, he hopes the, Repub- the Republicans on the committee uh, in the House side would be a little more vocal about admitting that the Republicans, uh, that, that the Trump people, you know, were involved in this. But on the Senate side, um, I think you see a lot more seriousness and a lot more willing to get to the bottom as one of the folks I spoke to on the Hill said, uh, you know, let the chips fall where they may. So the Senate may get a lot further, a lot farther along and quicker than the House was going to be able to get. Bob Dreyfus, read his reports on the progress of the Russia investigations at thenation.com. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Of course, we're all still trying to figure out what happened in the presidential race. How do you lose the presidency to the most unpopular candidate of all time? Now, Hillary has published a book with her answer. She calls it What Happened. For comment, we turn to Sarah Leonard. She reviewed the book for The Guardian, and she's a senior editor at The Nation. Sarah Leonard, welcome back. Thank you. Well, last time you were here, we asked you, why are young people voting for old socialists? I guess the question this time is, what is Hillary's explanation for her defeat? Uh, Maybe the place to start is, though, a slightly different question. What kind of book is this? What's it like? Well, at the risk of helping her to sell her book, it is a very entertaining book and far more entertaining than her previous books. Um, I don't know if anyone has read her earlier campaign autobiographies, but they're very careful. They're pretty boring. They're trying to put a gloss on any controversies that may arise uh, when she runs for office. In this book, she takes lots of swings at people. There's some score settling going on. And she also uh, doesn't really hold back in describing what her life is like. And what her life is like is totally wildly unrelatable, uh, including facts like she has not gone unaccompanied to pick up milk in about a decade um, or more. Uh, She and her husband have been under constant Secret Service protection for the last 25 years, and that she uh, finally really decided she would run for president for a second time while on vacation with Oscar de la Renta and his wife. So it's juicy. (laughs) It's pretty fun to read. And I enjoyed all of those parts, to be honest, much more than her particular political analysis. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, But now we come to the big question. Why does Hillary Clinton think she lost? What went wrong? What does she say were her mistakes? Well, she offers a lot of different answers to that. And really, in the end, it kind of boils down to two. The biggest in her mind I think, is James Comey and his last-minute press conference saying he was looking into more of her emails, and in general, the prevalence of the email narrative throughout the campaign, which she believes was not an important story, certainly compared to what Trump was doing, and I think that's actually right, and that at the very end, her numbers took a turn uh, among white suburban voters, and she blames that on Comey's press conference. I have to say... 
I'm a little bit sympathetic with her on this grounds. I can barely remember what that email thing was about at this point. <laughs> I I agree with you, actually. I think that that was a narrative that got blown way out of proportion. And while there are lots of valid critiques of Hillary Clinton, many of which I share with others, the fact that her emails were on a different server does not seem like the most important thing about her. And she may, in fact, be right that in the end, Comey tipped that narrow balance over to Trump with his press conference because, as Hillary notes, she won the popular vote. And in the swing states that she lost, she didn't lose by very much. And so on a sort of technical level, yeah, you could blame Comey for her loss. But we have (laughs) the big but that we're heading for here. Why was there a narrow balance in the first place? I started out by saying Trump was the most unpopular candidate of all time. Does she think she made any mistakes? So she does. And she acknowledges that maybe she's not the best politician. But largely, she seems to think that a lot of her words were taken out of context by a media that was irresponsible. And also that Typically, after four years of a president, sorry, eight years of a president from one party, voters tend to want change. And that's backed up by polls. And so, you know, she says that in a way it was um, that was working against her. Um, And she, in the end, says says a lot of things like I was a candidate and I failed and I have to take responsibility for that. But all of the reasons that she lost, that she really explores in depth, do have to do with other people or with the situation that she was in, not with what she did. And a really good example of that is when she talks about the speeches she made to banks, uh, she says, I shouldn't have done that and I take responsibility for that. But on the same page, she says, Many politicians who worked in the federal government went on to give speeches to bankers and to make money, and I shouldn't have been so silly as to think that that also applied to me. Hmm. The implication being that she feels pretty indignant that people came after her for making these speeches, and she's kind of failed to grasp why people wanted her to sort of pick a side, you know, the people or the banks and why she couldn't have it both ways. She doesn't seem to have internalized that. So while she says that she's taking responsibility for losing, it's unclear to me what that actually means to her. You open by saying she has basically two reasons why she didn't win. One was Comey's announcement late in the game uh, that he was reopening her investigation of the emails. What was the other one? So the other one is what she calls tribal politics. She feels like we're in a moment dominated by tribal politics. And she's primarily using that phrase to describe Trump's base, the sort of ethnic nationalism we've seen, the white supremacy that crawled out of the woodwork, sexism. And she sort of says that that blended with economic resentment to produce this, what she calls tribal politics, which was not helpful to her. Now, What she's sort of failing to address, of course, is all of the discontent on the left that plagued her campaign, which you could describe as populism, perhaps, although she sort of refuses to use the word populism. It maybe comes up once. She prefers this term tribal politics. And I think what she's doing there is trying to suggest that 
the sort of populist politics that we've seen on the rise over the last few years is across the board sort of irrational, bad, that it can't really represent a valid critique of her position and her history of politics. So you could attribute some of this populist politics during the election to the fact that Clinton economics failed and Bill Clinton's welfare policies that she supported at the time failed and failed a lot of people. NAFTA failed a lot of people. And so that's a sort of populism that's harder for her to completely refute and not take seriously. And so it's easier to only talk about populism as a sort of tribalism, as something bad coming from the right. You mentioned that sexism in her presentation is part of the problem of tribal politics. And she, I know she, she argues that she suffered disproportionately from charges of untrustworthiness and inauthenticity because she's a woman, she says. Does she say anything about the fact that 53% of white women voted against her? That was maybe the most shocking thing in, in the campaign. I think it's worth noting that Some of her charges of sexism are certainly correct. She's been treated in a very sexist way by the media for decades now. But the fact is that large numbers of white women have voted for Republicans for years, and they weren't going to change now because she's a woman. And it seems to me that she really misunderstood the historical potential that she represented to most people. She felt like she represented women's progress. And so being held back, being criticized in the media was a sexist act on the part of the media, on the part of her critics and so forth, and that she was suffering for that. For a lot of people, they saw another Clinton. There's Mm -hmm. nothing progressive or new about that. And of course, that's unappealing to a lot of women as well. Women who are Republicans and who have been voting Republican for years have learned to see the Clintons as the enemy, certainly. Um, And they're not going to be persuaded by yet another Clinton campaign that suddenly Hillary Clinton is an outsider. It seems like she really misunderstood the ways that elitism and populism were working in this election, and she still doesn't understand. On the subject of elitism and populism, she replies to critics by pointing to the chart in her book, It's becoming sort of a famous chart how many times she mentioned the word jobs. She says it's totally unfair for people like us to criticize her for elitism. Look at how many times she mentioned the word jobs. Uh, What did you think about the chart and what does it actually show? Well, she did say jobs. And I think that her fixation on like counting the number of times she said jobs and the length of her policy proposals betrays a really fundamental misunderstanding of politics. It's not that uh, people just want to hear you say jobs and present your policy platform. People want to know that you are, once you're in office, going to fight on the right side. Mm -hmm. And that's where the stuff with the speeches came in, right? Because Hillary wanted to say, I'm talking about the policies that will help you. And trust me, I'm totally going to fight for you once I'm in office. It's just in the meantime, I've been hanging out with all these bankers who took your houses and your jobs. They're not the enemy. We all just kind of have to work together. And, you know, I think Americans aren't stupid. You know, they know who caused the economic crisis. 
They know who the enemies of these policies are. And so it's a little bit confusing for her to say, well, when I was speaking to all of you, I said we needed to tax the rich and produce more jobs. Well, what's she saying in these other rooms? And the fact that she wouldn't release her speeches during the campaign reinforced the idea that she was talking out of both sides of her mouth. Bernie. We have to talk about Bernie. Of course, Bernie (laughs) gave a speech nominating her at the convention. He campaigned enthusiastically for her after the convention. He did everything the losing candidate in the primary is supposed to do for the winner. Uh, Does she thank Bernie for the hard work he put into uh, trying to make her president? (laughs) Um, Not much. She does acknowledge that he came out and campaigned for her in the end. She wishes he had dropped out a lot sooner. And she finds very frustrating that he put forward all of these policies that she considers utopian, things that would never pass Congress, universal health care, $15 an hour, and so forth, while she was putting forward things that she thought were fleshed out and realistic and could actually be turned into policy. And she compares this to Bernie promising ever in a pony, right? And then uh, this is the famous leak from her book that came out shortly before it did, wherein Bernie offers ever in a pony. And then she says, how are we going to pay for the pony? And everyone says, Hillary hates ponies. Now, (laughs) (laughs) well, that may have a little bit of truth to it. Something she doesn't seem to understand is people want aspirations. People want something to be working towards. And the only way you're going to get towards something like universal health care is by putting it on the table. Let other people force you to compromise. Don't compromise before you get started. That seems like a basic political truth that she didn't understand. And the criticism that Bernie had not fleshed all these plans out, whereas she had, I think that's true. It's also just a fact that she expected to govern, and he didn't. He didn't have to do that to campaign. And that's kind of okay. I think, as we've seen now with his new health care proposal, he's perfectly capable of putting together the nuts and bolts of an actual piece of policy that people can work for and debate. The idea that he came in as a spoiler and prevented her from running the progressive campaign that she would have run, which is what she says happened, is sort of preposterous. It's pretty clear to anyone who watched this election that he infused the election with a sort of economic populism that was sorely lacking from the Clinton campaign and that they really scrambled to adopt. It was not their natural mode, and it would not have been their mode had he not entered the election. Sarah Leonard of The Nation. She reviewed Hillary's book, What Happened for The Guardian. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks so much, Sean. The biggest and most definitive history of the Vietnam War is the documentary running on PBS this week. Of course, it's the work of Ken Burns. It's 18 hours long, over 10 episodes. For comment and analysis, we turn to Todd Gitlin. He's a writer, the author of 16 books, including the classic history, The 60s, Years of Hope, Days of Rage. He's professor of journalism and sociology and chair of the Ph.D. program in communications at Columbia University. 
And once upon a time, he was the third president of SDS, Students for Democratic Society, in 1963 and 64. And in 1965, he helped organize the first national demonstration against the Vietnam War, Washington, D.C., April 17th, 1965. I was there, too. Todd Gitlin, welcome back. Nice to be here, John. Well, our biggest worry about Ken Burns' history of Vietnam was that it would try to be even-handed and fair to the people responsible to the war. And he does have his narrator say they were, quote, decent people who made, quote, miscalculations, who had, quote, misunderstandings. Apparently, they were sincere in their fear that South Vietnam was being invaded by a communist country that was a proxy for Moscow attempting to spread communism everywhere. So, yes, mistakes were made, but they were tragic mistakes. Sadly, we killed a lot of people and lost a lot of people of our own. And let's hope future leaders don't make the same mistakes. What is your reading of Ken Burns' framing of this story and his explanation of why we lost? I want to say something first about the film as a whole. The film the film is several things. It's, a, it's an environment. It's a it's a soundscape. It's a succession of video, of pictures, clips. It's uh, it, it is an immersion experience, and it's also an argument. So a lot of attention has been focused, as you have also refocused it, on these lines of uh, Ken Burns and Lynn Novak, uh, to the effect that uh, it was uh, that these were. Miss calls, based on misunderstandings, that there were mistakes made in good faith. Um, now, okay, let's start with good faith. I think that, uh, well, I think Eisenhower and Kennedy were acting in good faith. That is, uh, they believed that it would be uh, abominable if, uh, if Vietnam were unified under a communist government. I think they sincerely believed that. Was that predicated on misunderstandings? Absolutely. Grave misunderstandings. As all the presidents from Kennedy on, and Kennedy in particular, understood, because Kennedy had criticized the support of the French uh, when the French reconquered Vietnam after the Japanese occupation. So much is to be said about the nature of their misunderstanding. I would call it a delusion. But I don't think it is adequate to chastise the film for some um, mealy-mouthed words at the beginning, which are arguable. I take the film to be a total experience. And as a total experience, this film says, what an abomination. The film is so redolent of enormities, of atrocities, of misplacement, what I mean by misplacement is that these people should not be here. The Americans should not be here. They had no business being here. This was a, a fated catastrophe. That, to me, is the overall experiential deliverable, as they say, uh, of the film. And that that's why I think, uh, you know, going, weighing, uh, holding the, these few words about good faith and decent in um, weighting them uh, heavily on the scales, I think, is is, is misguided. Fair enough, uh, fair enough. The film is a tremendous achievement. Some of our friends who are critics of the Ken Burns 
documentary agree that it presents a thorough indictment of the war, but they also complain that it dismisses most of the people who were committed to ending it. It's been said the film is both anti-war and anti the anti-war movement. I wonder if you agree with that criticism. Well, I've only seen the first five episodes, okay? I've seen half of the series. That characterization is, characterization is false about the first five episodes. Uh, it's true that there isn't very much. I think that it's fair to say that this is a film about the war, not the anti-war. Mm-hmm. But insofar as the anti-war movement is present, number one, the arguments of the anti-war movement are given more than they're due. They're given, uh, they are the essentially the arguments of the film. Secondly, in the fifth episode, which is the last one I've seen, there's an extended uh, interview with Bill Zimmerman, your fellow uh, uh, Angeleno, who is the sort of the the uh, delegate, uh, a chosen uh, deputy of the anti-war movement, and he gives a very good uh, uh, account of 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 the movement. There's an extended sequence uh, about the Pentagon march of uh, October. Uh, 1967, which is quite uh, decent, I think, quite respectful. Now, I understand, I've read others' accounts um, to the effect that the anti-war movement subsequently is not given its due, and um, I can't comment on that. I mean, that's what other people have reported. I haven't seen them. But uh, all I can say is that in the first five episodes... This is not only an anti-war film, but is a film in which anti-war sentiment is is legitimate. I, I would add that I've seen enough of the series to see that in the course of it, a number of the soldiers who are the prime testimony givers move themselves against the war. They turn against the war, and they. So, uh, if we think of the anti-war movement as including them, I would say. The anti-war movement is the place to be. It is the right place to be, is what this film is saying. Of course, the story of the Vietnam War isn't just the story of the American leaders, the American soldiers, and the American opponents of the war. It's also the story of the Vietnamese, which SDS emphasized from the start. We need to learn about the Vietnamese. We need to learn their history, their politics, their lives. The Vietnamese disagree among themselves. There's the Saigon government, which the United States created and supported and has some support, among, especially among Catholics. There's the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese, of whom the Americans killed, what, two or three or four million or something like that. How three million th- is the usual figure. Three yeah. million is the usual figure. How... Uh, how are the Vietnamese portrayed by Ken Burns? Well, this is the most we've ever seen, certainly the most I've ever seen, of uh, f- former uh, National Liberation Front fighters and North Vietnamese soldiers and officials giving an account of themselves. I mean, that's one of the really startling things of the film. They get a lot of space to tell their stories and to either defend or uh, readjust their views of what they did then. For the most part, they stand squarely behind what they did, and they think the war was a just war. Um, We also learn along the way that there were conflicts uh, in Hanoi about how to proceed, and so on. That's all very interesting and, to me, quite illuminating. One of the features of the film that is most uh, not only gripping but, but appalling in the right way is that uh, there are at least two sequences in the episodes I've seen in which we see the same battle from both sides. 
Wow. And that is, we not only get testimony from former soldiers from the U.S. and Arvin on the one side and Viet Cong, so-called, and uh, North Vietnam on the other, but we also see footage they shot from both sides. Uh, I, 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 it is true that the pathos uh, that is most, uh, I, I probably on the screen longest, or is the is the damage done to Americans? It's the it's the uh, it's the story of of American death, and why, so you know it can fairly be said. Well, why so much attention to that? Because American deaths were about two percent of Vietnamese deaths, and yeah, it's an American film uh, primarily for Americans. And so it has that same sort of weight, the same sort of weight that the Vietnam Memorial Wall in Washington has. Yeah. A, a lot of American names and no Vietnamese names. And that, okay, I mean, that's, that's a fair statement. That is true. Uh, but again, if my experience of the film is that this is a, an impassioned and deep uh, testimony against the legitimacy and the decency of the war. And we certainly do see a lot of uh, horrors perpetrated upon Vietnamese, uh, in particular Vietnamese civilians. So I, I don't think the, the film is whitewashing uh, the damage that was done to Vietnam. I think that it concentrates on the experience from the American side. But there's plenty of suffering of the Vietnamese that's visible. Last question. The Ken Burns Vietnam documentary is likely to be shown in schools, colleges, and maybe high schools for, for decades to come. For you and me, this is our lives. But for young people who know nothing about this, for whom this is ancient history, what what do you think they would will conclude about the war in Vietnam from the Ken Burns documentary. What are they likely to get out of it? What What would you like them to get out of it? Well, my surmise is that what they'll get out of it is is a, a gigantic, flashing question mark. What the hell was America doing there? Why did we do? How could we have done such a reckless, uh, indefensible thing? How could we have been so warped in our understanding? And and I think that the question that then follows is, how do we avoid going through all these things twice, to quote Brother Dylan? Um, how do we avoid lumbering under misapprehensions into uh, occupations of Iraq uh, in long longest war in American history in Afghanistan to know... Uh, honorable purpose that to me is the proper question and i think it's it's a logical question now i suppose some you know nobody ever sees a film entirely some way and some in the same way and some people will look at this and say uh well you know uh i think the military has figured out how to do this better the next time and um uh, then that, that can be you know, debated but i i think this film precipitates Again, the first half of it, which is what I've seen, precipitates the, the right arguments. Todd Gitlin, he wrote an essay on the anti-war movement's impact for the companion volume to the TV series. The book is called The Vietnam War and Intimate History, edited by Ken Burns and Jeffrey Ward. It's number eight on the New York Times bestseller list. 
Todd, thanks for those decades of work and writing about the war and the anti-war movement. And thanks for talking with us today. You're very welcome, John. Finally, a word about Edge of Sports. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by Dave Zirin. This week, Dave talks about how sports can unlearn toxic masculinity, cleaning up youth sports culture in America, and standing alongside teammates of color. That's on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide, posted every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>